0: Hello and welcome to the East Baltimore Graffiti Church's podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at ebgraffitichurch at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on our website at ebgraffitichurch.org. As Pastor Charlie said, I, I, don't, I don't live in the city, but my family has been in this neighborhood really for over a hundred years. We uh, started our family business right on um over there near like the giant off a green mount in the late 1800s there were stables where the giant grocery store is and my great 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 grandfather had a team of horses and a wagon and we started our moving company moving luggage to the ports in the late 1890s and my family's kind of been here working in this neighborhood for the last hundred and some years so I do spend a lot of time in this neighborhood and uh met charlie five or six years ago when he was what is it more than that now charlie seven. seven years ago when he was first moving to baltimore and i said well i love this community and i work here and i employ people here and i'm happy to serve uh, any way i can and hopefully i've proven that over the last seven years so it's good to be with you all this morning i think i gave diane the wrong passage but that's okay we were one one chapter off. Um, So I was talking to Charlie this week, and he shared with me that he had kind of had a busy week, and if he was honest, he was worn out, and what I preach, and I happened to uh, (laughs) preach out at my church last week. I don't preach every week. I preach about every other month or so I'll preach, and I had just spoken last week, so I had a a sermon ready, and I said, you know, I'd be happy to come down and, uh, and share... So kind of full disclosure, as I get ready to share with you this morning, uh, I told my church last week that this was the easiest sermon I ever wrote because I didn't write it. Uh, And one of the other elders at my church is teaching a class right now on the book of Exodus, and we're going through, and uh, this teaching came from his Sunday school class, a guy named Joe Feinauer. Joe was a carpenter by trade. He's been here. He's done some work around the building. But Joe's a dear teacher of mine, and this message just spoke so much to me that when it was my turn to preach, I said, Joe, could you share your notes with me? I'd I'd love to share that with the whole church. So uh, a lot of this good teaching comes from my brother Joe. Um, But uh, do you ever feel like life is a battle and you just can't win? (laughs) Uh, One step forward, two steps backwards. You find yourself fighting the same temptations, the same sin battles over and over. As Christians, we know we're supposed to live victorious lives. But we don't always experience those victories, do we? So we're going to look this morning at Israel's first battle and their first victory. We're going to look at the principles from that victory found in this passage we're going to look at this morning, and then we're going to see how do we take those principles and apply them to our own lives. Um, We can look at this, see, when the next battle comes, and we know it will come in our lives because Jesus told us in John chapter 16, he said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. See, we're not promised an easy life, but we are promised victory. So how do we take hold of that victory now in our lives as Christians? How do we start to live in that victory? So we're going to look this morning at the book of Exodus for some principles that will guide us towards living victorious Christian lives. So um, in this teaching on the book of Exodus, The teacher, Joe, he's taking the view that the book of Exodus is really the revelation of Jesus Christ as our complete Savior. We see in the book of Exodus that God saves us by His power. That's demonstrated in the plagues when God was rescuing the people from Egypt, and He showed His great power in how He used the plagues to rescue the people. So we're saved by God's power and by His blood, which was demonstrated in the Passover as the people had to paint the doorway with the blood of the Lamb to be spared. So God saves us from, by His power and His blood, and we see that very clearly in the book of Exodus. And then the rest of the book of Exodus shows us the outworking of that salvation in His redeemed people. As a complete Savior, He not only saves us from sin, Which is awesome and powerful and true. But he saves us to himself. He saves us to a victorious life. He provides us a deep and soul satisfying life uh, from him as we become his people. So this morning, I want to look at the topic of how to achieve spiritual victory in our lives. I want to explore this topic by looking at Exodus chapter 17, verses 18 through 16, where the Israelites first face their first battle as a people since leaving Egypt. Now, if we're talking about the book of Exodus as a whole, we don't consider when they're leaving Egypt and the bondage they have as slaves as their first battle, because the Lord completely fought that battle on their behalf. They didn't pick up weapons. They didn't lift a finger. The battle and the victory was the Lord. So that's not the first battle in Exodus. In Exodus 17, the Israelites find themselves still in the wilderness. They've escaped Egypt. They've escaped slavery. God has provided for them the chapter before, which Diane read for us. He's provided them with manna. And quail, he's provided them with water from a rock. So life seeming God is providing for their needs. They've escaped their slavery. And then out of nowhere, they're attacked by these people called the Amalekites. You ever feel like just as soon as you see God providing for you, just as soon as he meets your needs, all of a sudden you're attacked? This is what happens in our lives. We see this over and over, and it happened with the people in Israel. Before I want to uh, read this passage... I want to talk about a few biblical principles that uh, are guiding my sermon this morning, but also the study that uh, we've been going through at my church as we look at this. First, we believe that the events of the Old Testament really happened. They're historically accurate. This battle we're going to read about, it really took place. But the record we have here in the Bible is not primarily a history record. The Bible is always accurate primarily a spiritual revelation of who God is and who we are. You see, God used the biblical authors to reveal His spiritual truth, and all Scripture is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It all points us to Him. It all shows us who He is. So when we look at the Old Testament, we have to look through the historical events to see the revelation of who God is, and how he saves us. Here we see it in shadows, in picture form, in the seed form even. But later, in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the full revelation of who God is. And we see that uh, revealed to us in the New Testament. So the first uh, principle I want to share is that when we look at these Old Testament stories... Although they're history, they're primarily a revelation of who God is and who we are. They're spiritual revelations first, historical revelations second. The next principle I want to talk about is a principle that scholars used called the principle of the first mention. And what that means is that when anything happens for the first time in Scripture, it's significant. It's uh, here in this first mention, or, or the principle of the first mention says, when in the first mention of something in the Bible, God lays down those principles that are later more fully developed in Scripture. But this principle says that the, to understand the top, the keys to understanding a topic are found in the first mention in the Bible. So that's a useful tool. When something happens for the first time, we say, What is God showing us here? What are the keys here? So this passage we're going to look at here in one second uh, is significant for a few reasons. First, it's the first time the name Joshua is spoken in the Bible. And we know the name Joshua is a form of the same name that Jesus is given, which means Yahweh saves. So that first time that this name is being uh, spoken in the Bible, it's significant. It's, It's a hint that God is our Savior. It's also the first mention of writing something down in a book. That's historically significant. Uh, In in the scriptures, he tells them in this passage to write it down so that generations to follow will remember. It's also the first mention of the throne of God in scripture. And as I already stated, it's the first battle and the first victory. So let me read you this passage we're going to focus on here this morning. Like I said, God's providing for their needs, they're in the wilderness, and out of nowhere they're attacked by this group called the Amalekites. So this is Exodus 17, verses 8-16, through it says, The Amalekites came and attacked Israel at Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands." So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, because hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be again... At war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So uh, first, who are these Amalekites who attacked the Israelites? Uh, he, it says in in Numbers, uh, the book after this, twenty four twenty. It says he looked at Amalek and he took up the discourse and he said, Amalek was the first of nations, but its end will be destruction. As I've already said, Amalek was the first enemy to attack Israel. And here they represent every enemy since then that has continued to attack God's people. See, as God's writing the Bible here, and since this first war, Amalek pictures every enemy, every enemy you will ever face in your Christian life. The flesh, the world, the devil himself, and death itself is dealt with in this story, and every principle for victory you will need is found as we go through these nine verses here. Everything about victory is right here in seed form, in picture form. See, in Psalm chapter 83, uh, we read these verses here. Uh, 83, verse 4, it says, Come, they say, let us destroy them at a, as a nation, so that Israel's name is remembered no more. And with one plot, one mind, they plot together and they form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites and the of Moab, and the Hagarites, Ammon, and Amalek. You see, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, and Amalek was Esau's grandson. It says there, With one mind they plot to, together, come let us destroy them as a nation. See, this is an eternal battle that's still going on. We read in that passage; it says, "The Lord will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation." Generation to generation is their way of saying forever. The Lord will be at war with Amalek forever. In fact, this is the very same war that's still going on in the Book of Revelation, verses twelve through seven, or 12, chapter twelve, verse seventeen. We read. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. See, this is the same battle that rages through history. Those who are trying to do harm to God's people. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that, the day of e- so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. See, this battle is really the battle between the flesh and the spirit. If there's any doubt that this passage was about that, we don't have to look any further than the book of Galatians. Remember, the New Testament is the most inspired commentary of the Old Testament. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman and one by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through, the pl- through promise." which things are symbolic. He's saying, what are they symbolic of? They're symbolic of the war between the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. So that, yeah, so that you do not do the things you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, and against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So, this battle of Amalek versus Israel is really here to instruct us about the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. So let's look at the passage, and I want to show you the keys to victory here in all of our spiritual battles are found right here in this passage in Exodus. Rather than make you wait, I'm going to tell you right now what the three keys to victory are, and then we're going to work our way, and show you, and I'll show you where I find them in this passage. The first key to spiritual victory is that victory is a person, Jesus Christ. The second key is He is our victory— But to experience that victory, we have to lay hold of him. And the third key to victory is that we lay hold of him by lifting our hands in faith and touching the throne of God. So let's look at these three principles here. They're here in this passage in seed form. But I want to show how these principles are more fully explained in all of Scripture. So the first key to victory here is that victory is a person and that person is is Jesus Christ. In Exodus 17, verse 15, uh, which we just read, it says, Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. What does it mean that the Lord is my banner? Uh, The Hebrew there is Yahweh Nisi. It it means Yahweh is my banner. What, What is a banner? Today and throughout history, banners have been used much in the same way. What happens when something, somebody does something great? What happens when a sports player's jersey is retired? They hang it up in the rafters, they make a banner of his name and they put it up for everyone to see. What happens when the Olympian wins the race? They take their flag, their country's banner and they run it around for all to see. What happens when we land on the moon? We plant our flag, our banner in the moon to say, this is ours. So what is happening here, in war times, a banner was used another way, to rally the troops. And it was planted to signify that a victory had occurred. So when Moses says, and he names this altar, the Lord is my banner, what he's saying is that the Lord himself was their victory. The Lord was the victory. He was in the midst of the va- battle. He was the one they were rallying around, fighting for and with, but ultimately he was the victory. He was the banner. God was their victory. In Second Chronicles 20, 15, we read, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That is true of all the battles we face. They are not ours. They are His battles. This is one of the most basic principles of victory. The Lord is victory, and there is no victory without Him. There's no victory without the victor in our lives. So when they sang, when they were delivered from the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15, they said, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is His name. That is still true today. In Revelation 12:11, we, we read, "They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb." In Revelation 17:14, we read, "This "These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and the king of kings." So those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful." See, Paul sums this principle up in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 57, where he says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is a person. If you are feeling defeated, run to Jesus. There is no defeat at the foot of the cross. So that's the first uh, principle of victory here. Victory is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So uh, the second key here is that He is our victory, but to experience that victory, we have to take hold of Him. See, just like the blood of the Lamb had to be personally applied to the doorposts during the Passover to experience the salvation of God, so do we have to personally apply His victory To our life. There has to be a connection and contact contact with Him to experience it. We experience that connection through faith. The only thing that matters about any faith is the object of your faith. You can have a lot of faith in a weak object. Or you can have a very little bit of faith in the right object. It's not the quality of your faith that matters, it's the object of your faith. See, we experience the victory of Christ by putting our faith in Him as our victory. It connects us to the victory, it touches God and connects us to the Lord. First John five four says, "For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world: our faith. See, faith is that thing that connects us to the victory of God. All spiritual battles are battles of faith. When we fight these battles, what are we putting our faith in? Our own willpower, our resources, our ability to change ourselves." Our community. If we're not experiencing victory in our lives, chances are we have our faith in the wrong object. Because when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, He is victory. His very essence is victory. And when our faith is in Him, we will begin to experience that victory. So, how do we do that? We know that faith is the vehicle that connects us to that victory. The next key is that we lay hold of him by lifting our hands in faith and touching the throne of God. I want to look back at verse 16 here. It says, he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. He says, because their hands are lifted up, the literal word is taking hold of the throne, taking hold, grabbing the throne. Because your hands are grabbing the throne, the Lord will fight that battle for you. That's what he's saying here. So he says he'll be fighting that battle eternally. The idea of hands lifted up taking hold of the throne of God is used many times in scriptures. Again, this is the first mention. But if we look through the rest of scripture, we see that taught even more. In 1 Timothy 2.8 we read, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. In First Kings chapter 8 we read when famine or plague come to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when the enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come and when a prayer or a plea is made anyone among your people of Israel being aware of their afflictions of their own heart and spreading out their hands towards the temple, And hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart. So what's the spiritual reality of taking hold of the throne of God? If the first mention teaches uh, this concept is here in Exodus 17, then the full mention, the clear, full teaching of this is found in Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read Hebrews 4, verses... uh, 12 through 16, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, possess, profess, sorry, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Now hear this last verse. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. See, Moses said, I lift my hands to the Lord's throne and the Lord will fight against the Amalekites forever. What do we expect to find in the presence of God? What does the devil want you to believe you'll find if you approach God's throne? Judgment, anger, maybe a lightning bolt from the sky. Surely we can't get there. But what do we read here in Hebrews chapter 4? It says, let us approach then God's throne of grace. What is the throne of God made of? It's made of grace. So when we're afraid to go before the Father because our sin is too great, Remind yourselves that that throne of God is made of grace. It is a lie from the devil saying, stay away from that. You can't approach the throne. The work of Jesus allows us to go in boldly to that throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. See, the throne of God is made of grace. The battle and the victory is His, and He gives it freely to all who approach His throne of faith, bearing all, not not lying to the Father, but in helpless dependence, going before him, saying, Father, I need your grace again. And it will always be there, just as it was to Moses when he took hold of that throne of grace and fighting that first battle we read about in Exodus 17. Now, there's one more beautiful picture here in this story that I want to point out as I close. And that is that sometimes spiritual victory requires assistance from our brothers and sisters. Exodus 17, 12 through 13 says, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset, so that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. This is a really beautiful picture. See, we all know that Aaron was Moses' brother and he was the first priest, probably representing the church. But do you know who Hur was, this other guy? Me neither. He was just a guy who was there to hold up Moses' hands when he needed it the most. See, what I realized when I read this passage is that uh, Hur was nobody special. He's just you and me. See, we're rarely Joshua the hero fighting the battle or Moses, the great leader of God's people. Most of, us, most of us aren't Aaron, the priest, or the pastor, but we can all be her to somebody, coming alongside of them, holding up their spiritual arms, reminding them to take hold of the throne of grace, and by faith cling to Christ, our victor. Friends, this is the key to whatever spiritual battle you are facing. You don't have to win the battle yourself. Stop trying. You don't have to try harder. Christ has already overcome. All you have to do is by faith begin to apply that victory to your own life. Clinging to the throne of God, never being afraid to ask a brother or sister for help when your arms are too weary and you're growing tired. So again, I want to remind you of these three key, uh, keys to victory. Victory is a person, Jesus Christ. He's our victory, but to experience that victory, we have to lay hold of Him, and we do that by faith. And then laying hold of Him, we lift our hands, and we cling to that throne of grace of the Father. So, um, I thank you all for the opportunity to, to share with you this morning. I, I pray that it will be an encouragement to you as we all fight the battle. Uh, in this life, we will have trouble, but rejoice because He is overcome. Thank you. Amen.